Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for this privilege and honor we have to come together to worship you in spirit and truth, to exalt your holy name. And O oh Lord, we look now to your word, to the scriptures for instruction for our souls. We pray our hearts would be made tender by your spirit, that our minds would be receptive and that you would use your word to sanctify us, transform us and renew us into the image of your beloved son. O oh Lord, we ask Father now for clarity of mind. O oh Lord, teachable spirits, I pray for myself. O oh Father, that you would carry me by your power of your spirit, that you would use me as a vessel of honor to declare the glory of your praise. And that, Father, that you would indeed manifest yourself through the ministry of the word today. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Pardon me, I just have a terrible case of dry mouth. So we're picking up on where we left off last time, and that was in regards to putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we talked about the spiritual wardrobe that God has provided us and putting on the new attitudes and character that have been richly provided for us in Christ. We know that that's not natural to us. It's supernatural. It's from God. And we're picking up in that same thought pattern. We begin today by a call and an exhortation on how we ought to live this new life. And it talks about um, the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts and the words of Christ filling our, um, filling our, our hearts and ultimately doing everything in the name of Jesus. And what we see here really is what it is to live in the fullness of Christ and to have the fullness of Christ dwelling in us. And as I was pondering and preparing, one of the things that occurred to me I was asking myself, why is it at times we go through our Christian life and it just seems so dry, so difficult, it's almost like we're, we're barely making it. Have, have any of you ever felt that way? Like, like it's a struggle just to get through the day. There are times where it just feels you're languishing like, like sin and the flesh have the victory over you and and you're like, I just can't get through it. I, and you read about passages like this and you're like, this is great, but it's not me. Where's the power? How many of you feel like that? How many of you feel sometimes like you're languishing, like you're in a desert land, like you're, you're desperate for, for water, you're starving, you feel like you just can't make it no more? Why are we so plagued? Why do we get like this? It's a question I was asking myself as I was preparing Oftentimes, I'll find myself that I'm on dead E in my car when it's in a very inopportune time. Between here and Yorktown Heights, there are very few gas stations. And when I look at my little uh, digital display that tells me how many miles left I have to burn before I run out of gas, it says five, but I have another 10 miles to go. I'm running on fumes. And I just barely make it to Yorktown Heights and pulling BJs and get gas. How many times do you run on fumes? How do we fill the tank before we crash and burn? Well, I've realized the problem is this. We're running on fumes where we're struggling because we're doing it all in the flesh. 
We're doing it in our human strength. We're trying to live the Christian life all on our own. Prayerless, Bibleless, without fellowship. We try to do it on our own and think that somehow we're going to make it. You're going to fail. You're running on fumes. Your tank is empty. There is only one fuel source that can energize the Christian life, and it is Jesus Christ. We need to be filled with him and have the fullness of Christ in our life. If we don't fill our tanks with Jesus, you can't do this. And to be filled with Jesus is to be filled with the Spirit. Psalm 23, 5, David said in the psalm, my cup runneth over. That is the kind of life I want to live. It's the kind of life I hope you want to live. That our cup wouldn't be half full, half empty. It wouldn't be a drop left at the bottom, but that our cup would runneth over, that the Spirit of God would fill us in such a way that we can charge through this Christian life. And although we may fail, and although we may have fumble, and although we may not succeed, it is Christ who will take the steering wheel and bring us through. And so with that, I want to look at three separate points today in the message. One is the fullness of Christ's peace, the fullness of his word, and the fullness of his name. First, the fullness of his peace. Going back to verse 15, we have to look how it connects to verse 14. Because in verse 14, the final exhortation is there that we too should put on love. Love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That word harmony there is not mistake because when the Christian community, remember Paul is writing to the Colossian church, when you have love, Christian love in you and you're putting it on and you're loving others and seeking the good of others above your own, there'll be harmony in the church. And it's with that idea of harmony that you get to verse 15 and it says, let the peace of Christ Rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. And so what we're talking about here now is that there is a passivity here to allow the peace of Christ to rule in your hearts. What do we mean by the peace of Christ here? This is very interesting because this phrase and this passage is used often as a, um, a, a proof text of how we should go about our decision-making. So oftentimes, uh, different commentators will say, this demonstrates that when making a decision, we have to allow the peace of Christ to rule and, 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 and inform our decision-making process. Now, I want to say two things. Number one, that is not uh, contextually accurate. We are not discussing decision-making here. Um, what we're talking about is the unity and harmony of the body of Christ. However, I did want to comment this uh, uh, for a brief moment for the simple fact that this is a common uh, misinterpretation and misview that I've heard many Christians use. Um, And I think based on our background or what kind of teaching we received in the past, there are many people who may confuse the peace of Christ with peace and calmness in making a decision. So for instance, what I mean, not every time you make a decision in life, you're going to have peace and calm in your heart. There are times you're going to make decisions that are good decisions where you may not be calm about it. 
And we can't, we can't interpret that as not having the peace of Christ in our hearts. And so obedience to God will not always lead to a peaceful and calm heart. I'm sure when the martyrs were standing in the amphitheaters in ancient Rome were about to give their lives for the sake of Christ and to be skinned alive or thrown to the wild animals, I am sure they were not calm and peaceful. I'm sure there was an anxiety, there was a trepidation, there was a sense of fear that was about to come, and, and rightfully so. I, I'm sure when Esther was called by her uncle Mordecai and confronted and said, listen, you must speak for your people and go to the king and intercede for us so that this great harm will not come to our people. It was Esther who said, if I die, I die. But she knew what she had to do, and I'm sure there was anxiety, there was stress, there was a sense of fear that came upon her. That's normal, but she did what was right. It's times of matters of conscience. In Romans 14, 23, whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. When something is wrong and our conscience is convicting us it's wrong, we need to obey our conscience. That's the lack of peace that is clear. When we, when we know we're going to violate God's commandments, that is something that we should clearly obey that lack of peace. But we cannot confuse that with fear and anxiety. I, I could tell you this, every major decision I've made in my life, I've had fear and anxiety. Everything I've had to do that was difficult, I've had fear and anxiety. I have to go for surgery in another month. I have fear and anxiety. That doesn't mean I lack peace. It means I'm afraid to go under the knife. I don't like going under the knife, but I know it needs to be done, and I'm putting my faith in Christ to do it. John Piper says this, our peace and calm can be disturbed as we make a decision. Our peace can be disturbed not only by whether the decision is right or wrong, but our peace and calm can be disturbed by whether the decision will be costly or not. If you're about to make a decision or do something good for somebody and your conscience is not disturbed that it's wrong and your heart is not disturbed and your heart is disturbed that it might be painful, do it. Lack of peace over possible danger and lack of peace over possible sinning are not the same. And so I, I want to make that clear because we're all confronted with this at one time or another. And I think what we have to do is recognize the difference between peace and calm over sinning and peace and calm over things that are fretful. That is not what Paul is referring to here, however, what Paul is referring to is that the peace of Christ must rule in our hearts in relationship to the corporate gathering of the church. The peace of Christ here is not necessarily the peace with Christ. It is the peace of Christ. It is the peace that only Christ can give. John 14, 27, Jesus promises us, my peace I leave you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, but as I give to you. This is the peace that can only come from Christ. It is the, the peace that's predicated on our peace with Jesus. In other words, we have peace with God because of his blood. Chapter 1, verse 20 tells us that Christ made peace. He brought shalom between us and God. We were reconciled with God because of the blood of Jesus that purchased our redemption. As Douglas Moose said, 
It is the eschatological state of cosmic restoration. It is, and it is because of this peace that we have with God that we are no longer God's enemies. God is no longer angry with us that we can allow the peace of Christ rule in us. That is a peace that is supernatural. It is a peace that causes us to be peacemakers. It is to spread the peace of Christ. You see, our Lord Jesus was a peacemaker. He didn't seek to make peace with sin or the world, but he didn't seek to make war with people and to fight and to argue. Christ was gentle and lowly in spirit. And so what we're seeing here is that this has to do with our function and relationship within the local church. Notice he asked the Colossians to let the peace rule. The word rule here in the original Greek means an umpire who renders verdicts in contested situations. What is Paul referring to here is that within the local church, there are going to be times where we're going to have disagreements, we're going to have disputes, we're not all going to see things the same way. What should be the determining factor on how we move forward? What will bring peace? What allows for the peace of Christ to reign in the local church rather than tearing each other apart, arguing and fighting and gossiping and slandering and undercutting and looking over our shoulders? It is the peace of Christ that must rule. It must be that which we seek and that which we pursue and that which we're eager to bring about. It's in our hearts because it's the guiding principle with how we act with one another. And it is in the context of to which you were indeed called to one body, as the second half of verse 15 tells us. This idea of one body stresses and emphasizes the context, meaning the unity of the local church. To prove my point, go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. Notice what it says here in chapter 2, verse 14 of Ephesians. For he himself is what? Our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in, here's the phrase, one body. In one body. Through the cross. What is he referring to? Well, in the ancient church, there was hostility between Jews and Gentiles. There was tension between uh, uh, these varying parties within the church. And he's telling us that we are now one body in Christ. And that oneness is achieved through Christ who died on the cross to make peace between us. You know, if you think about it, how could any of us get along apart? from the peace of Christ. And we would all be at each other's throats. It's the peace of Christ that rules and joins people from different backgrounds, from different ideas and different uh, 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 you know, areas of, of, of thought and belief, and we come together because of our oneness in Christ. I think this is so important here that we understand that Paul is saying in making your decisions, in choosing between alternatives, in settling conflicts of will, 
the concern to preserve the inward and community peace that Christ gave should be the controlling principle of how we do business. Now, let me, let me give a, a disclaimer to that. That does not mean peace at all costs. What do I mean by that? While peace is the very determining factor in which we seek to how we govern ourselves as the corporate body of Christ, there are times when we must fight. There are times where we have to stand our ground. There are times where we must divide because there are some things worth fighting for. When we talk about the integrity and honor of God, we will fight for that. When we talk about uh, the integrity and the purity of doctrine, we will fight for that. When we talk about the, the pursuit of holiness in the church, we will fight for that. All the other stuff, the little petty stuff that we, we bicker about, that's not important. That's the stuff where we yield to one another in humility. But in the bigger stuff, we fight and we go to the mat. Ultimately, in the first century, Pax Romana had ruled the world. Augustus, Caesar Augustus, had instituted Pax Romana where wars ceased and people were free to trade, they were free to do business, they were free to, to, to develop themselves under the Roman Empire. But through Christ, we have the Pax Christiana. And in that peace, there is a cessation of war and it allows us in the kingdom to pursue, pursue our respective callings without the threat of constant war. And so the first thing we see of the fullness of Christ is the fullness of his peace demonstrated in the local church. The second aspect of the fullness of Christ is the fullness of his word. The fullness of his word. Look at verse 16. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Again, let me be clear what this does not mean. I hope none of you have a Bible, or some of you may have inadvertently, the Bible that has the words of Christ in red. I mean, did anybody have that Bible? Okay, we pray for you, brother. <laughs> I, have, I have a couple too. The words of Christ here that's being referred to is not the words of Christ in red. The red letter Bible does not, I think the, the, the failure there is that we somehow think those words are more important than the rest of the words of the Bible. All of the Bible is the word of Christ. From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22, all of scripture testifies of me, Jesus said. All of it points. You want to know what the one common theme, you know what the, the uniting theme of the Bible is? It is Jesus. Everything points to Christ. From the Old Testament looks forward to the coming of Christ and the New Testament looks back to Christ. It is all about Christ and we're looking forward to the coming of Christ. And so therefore, his words are recorded in Scripture through the Holy Spirit revealing to us the mind and heart of Christ. And so when his command is to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, we have to see that with a parallel passage in Ephesians 5, 18 through 19. 
And notice in this parallel passage how it is written. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and making melody by, to, to the Lord with your heart. Be, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, be filled with the Spirit. They're two of the same thing. If you allow the word of Christ to dwell in you richly, then you will be filled with the Spirit of God. And what the question is, what does this mean? It really comes down to influence and control. Right? Do not be drunk with wine. Why? Because when you get drunk with wine, you are what they call under the influence. You get pulled over and you, you had a few drinks and they do a breathalyzer. You can get a, a DWI driving while intoxicated or a DUI driving under the influence. Under the influence of what? Under alcohol or drugs. And you'll get your license taken away and you'll go to jail. How many times are we under the influence of something other than the Spirit of Christ? What could we be under the influence of? Well, clearly, if you're not filled with the Word of Christ, you're filled with something. Usually we're filled with self, right? The person who's not filled with Christ and not filled with the Spirit is filled with self. Self Self-aggrandizement, self-pride, stroking our egos, uh, selfish ambition, and and, and, uh, everything is revolved around me, myself, and I. It's a very small world you live in because everything is dominated, controlled, and influenced by how it affects self. And that naturally pours into the flesh. If you're under the influence of the flesh, it's all going to be about what stimulates the flesh, what pleasures the flesh, and what's good for the flesh. But when you're under the influence of the Spirit of God, when you're under influence of the Word of Christ, that means you are controlled by the Spirit. You are controlled by the Word of Christ. Notice the phrase, let it the Word dwell richly. In other words, let the Word have a, a, a grounding in your heart. Let it be rooted. May it shape and dominate the way you think and the way you process and the way you, you will things. You see, this is the difference between running on fumes and living the victorious Christian life. It's when words, God's word dwells in us richly that we're under its influence and we start thinking biblically. And when you start thinking biblically, you start talking biblically. And when you start talking biblically, you start acting biblically. The less of the Bible you have in your life, the more unbiblical you're going to be. It's really simple. The mind is a sponge. And what you take in is what's going to come out. The more garbage in, the more garbage out. The more goodness in, the more goodness out. What influence are you under? (coughs) Thank God the federal government is looking to take TikTok down once and for all. It's probably one of the most poisonous weeds to the minds of people in America in the past 50 years. Every child under the age of 18 is being really brainwashed by it. And no wonder, because the Chinese government is behind it and using it to to study our habits and patterns and behaviors and build dossiers on individuals. And the federal government is aware of this and hopefully gets taken down. This sermon is not about TikTok, but what it is about is having something that takes control and influence in your life. And there are a lot of people who are influenced by a little metal slab in their pocket. 
It controls and dictates your life, not the word of God. The word of God must not simply be superficial or passing. It must be deep, penetrating contemplation that allows the message of the gospel to have a transforming influence and power over our lives. Sam Storm says this, Paul's point is that we must grant the word of Christ the highest priority and place in the corporate experience of the church. It must be preached, proclaimed, explained, and applied. It should dwell in us individually and among us corporately, not haphazardly or insignificantly, but richly. In other words, let the truth about Jesus be taught and known and obeyed in all its glory and beauty and riches. Give it full sway and let its intrinsic power and splendor do its work in and for you. Amen. You see, many churches have failed in this area. A lot of churches, when they, as they look to how they design their worship services and they look how to design the life and activities of the church, it all revolves around man. It all revolves around what can make man happy. What can we do to get the crowds in? What's going to make people feel good? What will excite people? What, and, and so what you see is a lot of programs and, and ministries revolved around uh, a self-conquering and, and self-will and self-help and self-aggrandizement. And people gravitate to those churches. But that is not what we're to do. We're not to... to Uh, promote and advertise a church or build a church up based on humanistic thinking. Rather, we must do it in the word of God. It is the word of God that builds a church and should shape and influence all our programs, should shape and influence our ministry, should shape and influence our life, should shape and influence our teaching, our preaching, our music. Everything is shaped and influenced by the Bible. And that's the result. When the word of Christ dwells richly in you, it will result in Christ-exalting worship. Notice two things. So that you may teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Now, while not everybody's called to be a teacher in the church or preacher or pastor, we are all teachers of one another. Every one of us is called to teach and admonish one another. As parents, we're all teachers. We teach our children and we teach them the fear and instruction of the Lord, but among each other, older believers are to teach younger believers how they are to live their lives. Titus chapter 2 tells us that uh, the older women teach young women, older men teach younger men. This is part of discipleship. It's part of the life of the church. And by the way, there's times when someone who's younger could teach someone who's older a thing or two. We're never too old to learn, and none of us are too young to teach. Even Elihu, in the book of Job, was the only one who spoke wisdom among all of Job's companions. He was the youngest. When the word of God fills you, you can't hold it in. When the word of God is dwelling in you richly, you can't keep it, contain it. It's going to come out naturally, and you're going to want to give it to others. And so you will teach others and admonish others with all wisdom. But it also results in heartfelt worship, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, Psalms are most likely referring to the Old Testament Psalms, which would have been sung in the early church. Hymns are just simply a word in Greek that describes a song of praise to God. Clearly, they didn't have in mind 18th century hymns that we do. 
We're talking, you know, the first century. And then you have spiritual songs. These are just regular songs that uh, could be spiritualized and sung spiritually. And what you see here is a rich variety of music in the early church. One thing about the Christian church that distinguishes it from most religions is that Christians are a singing people. We sing. We sing because God has put a song in our hearts. We have joy. And there is something about Christian music that is uplifting, it's elevating, that even the unbelievers acknowledge and recognize. Uh, This past um, December, I went to the Jefferson Valley Mall and uh, First Baptist Church of Peekskill had their choir and they were singing gospel music and gospel-themed Christmas songs in the Jefferson Valley Mall and everybody stopped to listen. You don't have to be a Christian to acknowledge that these songs of praise to God are good songs. It does something for your soul. It ministers to you. You can preach the gospel through music. So sad. I remember back in the early 2000s, late 90s, churches were torn apart over worship wars. Should we sing hymns? Should we sing modern choruses and contemporary music? And people literally went to the mat on those things. The peace of Christ wasn't ruling there. It was the flesh and personal preferences. The Christian worship uh, 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 music, Christian worship music has evolved. We certainly don't sing the songs they sang in the first century, and we wouldn't want to. We don't sing the songs they sang in the third century, and we wouldn't want to. In the medieval church, they sang Gregorian chants, and we would not want to sing those. We sing what we sing today, and we sing it to the glory of God. But one thing is certain. God puts a song in your heart when you're a new creation. Pastor Paul was sharing something interesting with me. He has a friend of his, a family that's friendly with him, and they, they help him out a lot down in Long Island. They're a good, nice Christian couple. They've come here to visit. And, um, and the wife will go over the house periodically and just sing hymns to Pastor Paul and pray with him. And it ministers to his soul. She's not performing for an audience. She's singing to God and ministering to Paul's heart. And he's blessed by that. When was the last time you sang for someone? When was the last time you sang in your house? Imagine how much the Spirit would fill our homes if we sang more. God bless my mother-in-law. Whenever she's around, she always sings out loud to the Lord when she visits us. She has a song in her heart and she likes to sing. She sings praise to Jesus. Thirdly, we see the fullness of his peace, the fullness of his word, and now the fullness of his name. Finally, whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus to the glory of God the Father. What a powerful way to end this letter. What a high note. Not this letter, but this section of the letter. What does Paul want us to think? He wants us to see the fullness of Christ in our lives as manifest and is made real when we do everything in the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is powerful, isn't it? It is by the name of Jesus. It's the only name under heaven which men must be saved. It is the name of Jesus in which we are baptized. It is the name of Jesus in which we cast out demons, that even they shudder at the mere mention of his name. The world in all its hostility blasphemes his name constantly. Do you ever think about that? You turn on a movie. Why do they always blaspheme the name of Jesus? 
How come they don't say, oh, Moses or oh, Muhammad? Because the name of Jesus is powerful. And even his enemies will curse and use his name as blasphemy, as evidence that Christ is real. The name of Jesus is powerful. But it also represents who we are. We are Christians. We belong to Christ. We belong to Jesus. He is the Lord Jesus. He's our Lord. And what Paul is saying here is everything you do and say, now I want you to think about that because that is all-encompassing. That is comprehensive. There is a universal scope there to saying all that you say and do. It's telling us that everything in our life, the whole spectrum of our being is designed to be surrendered to Jesus Christ. Everything you do and say in life is either going to bring honor to the name of Christ or is going to dishonor his name. What does it mean to do and say everything in the name of the Lord Jesus? That means if you can't do something that you can say, I'm doing this in Jesus' name, then you're doing it in whose name? You're either doing it in your name or you're doing it in the name of the devil. You're representing someone by your actions. And when I say the devil, I mean, Peter was told by Christ himself after he said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for you, you, you say those things which no man could see when he said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Shortly later, he said, get behind me, Satan. Because the things he said that he should not go to the cross did not represent God, but represented the devil. What he was saying was not in Jesus' name. <laughs> it wasn't in Jesus' honor. It was in the devil's honor. So what we do and say could either bring honor and glory to God or honor and glory to Satan or to ourselves. There's no neutral path here. And so Paul is saying everything you do, and I, I got to tell you, I sat there and I was thinking about this. There's a lot of parts of our life that we don't want Jesus to touch, don't we? I thought about this myself. I said, man... Do I let Jesus rule every part of my life? Or there's certain areas I say, that's mine. You stay out of it, Lord. That's a, that's a heart-searching question because I go back to why are we running on fumes? We hold them back from the Lord. Are there areas of our life that we just won't surrender? The fumes get stronger as we go. Recently, recently on television, Harry, Prince Harry and Meghan had an interview, a tell-all interview after a tell-all book was disclosed. They brought out all the scandal of the royal household of Great Britain, some salacious details very moving stuff. Shortly before then, Prince Andrew, Prince Charles' brother, was caught up in a scandal of his own. His name was brought up as one of the men involved in Jeffrey Epstein's brothel of young girls down in the Caribbean. 
the Prince of England, one of the princes of England, involved with underage women with Jeffrey Epstein. Could you imagine what that does to the name of the queen when she was alive? You see, whether it's Prince Andrew or Harry, they represent something bigger than themselves. They represent the throne of England. Whether you agree with Harry or not, the fact is he brought shame and disgrace to his family name. It's not a matter of whether what he said was true or not. He brought dishonor to his family's name. Andrew brought shame and disgrace to his family's name. As a result, the crown of England is deteriorating. I was just reading recently, there's not one musician in Great Britain who will attend the coronation or sing at the coronation of King Charles. When you bring scandal to the name of your family, it is bad. When you are a royal and you bring scandal to your family, it's worse. My brothers and sisters, we are children of the king. We are sons and daughters of the royal family of Christ. He is the Lord and king of the universe. Do you grasp that? Do I grasp that? And our actions are either going to bring honor and glory to his name or we're going to bring scandal and reproach to the name of Jesus. It was Paul who wrote to the Jews in Romans 2 that because of you, the Gentiles blaspheme. Many times it's our own conduct, our misconduct that causes unbelievers to curse the name of Jesus. Whatever we do in word and deed, may it be in the name of Jesus and to the glory of God the Father. Let me conclude today with two things. When we think about the fullness of Christ in our lives, we begin to understand how the Christian life is lived. When we come to faith in Jesus, we become one with him. We're no longer ourselves, but Christ lives in us. When we put on the Lord Jesus, we put on the character and attitude of Jesus. When the fullness of Christ is made manifest in us, his peace rules our hearts. We're governed by his word. We do everything in his honor and glory. There are two important principles I want to end with. Number one, in order to experience the fullness of Christ, to be filled in him, we must be emptied of self. If our tank is filled with self, there's no room for Jesus to dwell in our hearts. There's no room for Christ to govern if all we're filled with is our own ideas and our own will and our own heart and our own ambition, there's no, Christ can't rule. And you will just run the Christian life on fumes and it'll just be an act, it'll just be religiosity. But when you empty yourself of self, you allow God to fill your vessel and fill it to the brim till it runneth over. 
That's when the Spirit controls your life. Less of me, all of thee. But there's another aspect too, is that we must have clean vessels. God's not going to pour clean water in a dirty vessel. And the first thing we need to do is be cleansed. And we are cleansed how? By repenting and going to Christ and confessing our sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to what? Forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We need to be cleansed. We need to go daily to the throne of grace and confess our sins. Somebody was asked on TV a couple of years ago, do you confess and ask God for your sins and ask God for forgiveness? And the person says, I don't need to ask God for forgiveness because I don't sin. Is that any of you? Do you feel you don't need to confess or ask God for forgiveness because you're okay? I would ask, like David said in Psalm 139, who was a man after God's own heart, search me and try me. If there be any wicked way in me, please reveal it to me, Lord. Until we humble ourselves, confess and repent, and die to self, you cannot see the power of God in your life. Secondly and finally, there is one common denominator in all three of these verses. In verse four, verse 15, at the end, and you might think, oh, Bob, you overlooked this. No, I didn't. The second part of verse 15, be thankful. The second part of 16, sing your songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The end of verse 17, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In all of this is laced a heart filled with gratitude. When the peace of Christ rules in your heart, you will be thankful to God. And you can't have peace in your heart if you're not thankful. It goes both ways. The thankfulness produces the peace. It's when we're in thankfulness and gratitude and awe of God that he fills us with his word. And as we do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, it is through him, through his power, that we give thanks to God the Father. I never understood this, but the more I get older, I do, is how we must constantly be thankful before the throne of God. We can't thank him enough. And usually... When our lives are not in step with the Spirit, it's because we're not thankful. It's because we're bitter, we're angry. We feel that life hasn't been fair. We deserve better. We're not content. And when that takes place in your heart, you will be filled with self. You will be filled with pride. You will be filled with sin. You will be filled with everything but the fullness of Christ. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us. But the cure and the hope for all of us is what? The gospel. It all comes down to this. You see, you could live the Christian life in your own strength, or you could come to Christ face down, humble yourself, and come before Jesus as the only one, not only who could save you, but who could sanctify you. You see, you keep running in the flesh, eventually we'll stand before God, those who are running in the flesh one day and say, but Lord, I prophesied in your name. But Lord, I cast out demons in your name and I, I did all these things. And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you, workers of lawlessness. Because it was never done in the spirit, it was all the flesh. 
There was never true saving faith. For there to be true life, there needs to be true saving faith. We need to be born of the Spirit, born again, born anew, to have God's Spirit ruling in our hearts. If you haven't come to faith in Christ, I urge you, come to him. If you've never heard the good news of Christ, believe now. If you've heard it a thousand times and you're a churchgoer for many years, believe in Christ and repent. We need to hear the gospel, all of us, every day. It's the good news that God is no longer angry with us. We have peace with him, and through that peace, we can have peace with others. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I am weak and weary. Lord, as I preach today, I look in the mirror and see my own desperate need of you. That I may not run on fumes, but be empowered by your spirit. I pray, O oh Lord, help me, along with all the members here of Grace and Truth, to die to self, to surrender our hearts to you, and to allow you to fill our lives that we may bring honor and glory to your name. Oh Lord, we need you so desperately. We need revival. We ask that you would do this very work for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.